Hello, and welcome to The Broad Chronicles, a women's history podcast celebrating the lives and stories of remarkable women in the world. I'm Kayla, and this time, we're returning to the life of Queen Victoria. For a more thorough background of this episode, go back and check out the first part. When we last left Victoria, she had just been crowned at the age of 19. We also discussed how Victoria's path to the throne was nothing short of unexpected. Despite her grandfather, King George III, having 15 children, not one of them had produced a legitimate heir to the throne. Her eldest uncle, King George IV, was the closest, but he had no living heirs after the death of his daughter and previous episode subject, Princess Charlotte Augusta of Wales, who died in childbirth, and this sent his younger brothers into a race to marry and produce their own legitimate children. Victoria was born in 1819, the third child of her mother and the first legitimate child of her father, Prince Edward, the Duke of Kent. Her father passed away when she was only eight months old, leaving Victoria in the care of her mother and his former equerry, Sir John Conroy. Victoria was raised in extremely sheltered and isolated conditions, and her mother was frequently in conflict with her uncles. The Duchess of Kent and Sir John Conroy frequently tried to bully Victoria into giving them more power over her, which was something she fiercely resisted. Victoria's uncle, William IV, managed to live until one month after Victoria's 18th birthday. Victoria was quick to establish her independence from her mother and, at the age of 19, was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom. So, when we pick up with Victoria, she's settling into her role as Queen, and she is meeting her very first Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne. The Prime Minister at the time of her ascension was 60-year-old William Lamb, Lord Melbourne. He was an experienced politician who touched more than one scandal in his lifetime. His wife had cavorted with Lord Byron the Poet. That had not ended well for her. And he had recently been cited in a divorce case, which ultimately came to nothing, but it did leave a little bit of a spot on his reputation. Victoria was a daughter without a father, and Melbourne was a father who'd lost his child. He was indulgent with Victoria and patient with her as she learned to be queen. Victoria became quite reliant on his opinions and thoughts on the world. Victoria is going to develop this pattern throughout her life of finding a strong male figure that she relies on um, in many capacities. And the very first one will be Lord Melbourne. He ends up shaping her political outlooks as a young queen, but this was potentially problematic because Victoria is a constitutional monarch, so she has no real power. Her job was to remain as politically neutral as possible and not to dictate policy. So she can't look at the prime minister and say, you need to do this. Um, That's outside of her role as queen. As a young woman in a unique political situation, and by that I mean a woman in the 19th century who actually had a little full of political agency, she enthusiastically formed opinions on government and politics, and Melbourne didn't make many attempts to restrain this influence over her. Melbourne's near-constant attendance on the Queen in the early days of her reign would draw some strong opinions from his political opponents and eventually from the nation as a whole. And they lead right into some of Victoria's first major scandals as Queen. And the first, the first major one is the Hastings Affair. 
Victoria's mother had a lady-in-waiting named Lady Flora Hastings, and Victoria could not stand this woman. She felt like her mother used Flora Hastings to spy on her. She could not stand her. So the prime chance for a rumor to get started happened. After returning home from Christmas of 1839, Lady Flora saw the Queen's physician complaining of nausea and a distended stomach. There wasn't much the doctor could do because Lady Flora refused to be examined physically. It was considered extremely improper for an unmarried woman to be examined physically by a male physician. Initially, this is kept hushed up, but Baroness Lazen, Victoria's governess, we met Lazen in the last episode, found out and told Melbourne, who presumably told Victoria. What makes matters even more suspicious for Victoria was the fact that Lady Flora had shared a coach with John Conroy, another person Victoria obviously hated. It wasn't too hard for Victoria to reach the conclusion that Lady Flora was pregnant and John Conroy was her baby daddy. Spoiler alert, it was cancer and she died. But not before rumors spread like wildfire. Lady Flora went so far as to publish her own version of what was going on in the examiner. Eventually, things get so bad that she agrees to be examined, and it came out that she was not pregnant. She had, like I said, cancer. This ended up being a huge blow to Victoria's reputation, with some going so far as to call her Mrs. Melbourne. Victoria was deeply affected by her role in the whole scandal, but it wouldn't be her last major scandal of the year. Um, Lady Flora ended up having, I believe, a mass on her liver that ultimately claimed her life, and her family was furious about the matter, especially her brother, Lord Hastings. Her next major scandal is the bedchamber affair. In this time, it was customary for the prime minister to appoint members of the queen's household who were prominent figures in the political party or their spouses. In 1839, Melbourne resigned his position as prime minister after radicals and Tories voted against a bill he supported, and the new prime minister, Robert Peel, who is going to come up again, uh, formed a new government in the queen's name. And Victoria was, was not happy about this. Robert Peel was from the opposite political party, And even though she wasn't supposed to have a political opinion, she very much had one. And when it came time for Mr. Peel to exercise his expected um, right to appoint new members of the Queen's household, um, Victoria refused. She was happy with her uh, wig ladies and she refused to let any new people be appointed to her household. Peel saw this as a lack of confidence in his ability to govern, and he resigned, so Melbourne was able to return to office, and Victoria, just being a 19, 20-year-old girl, really didn't see the far-reaching implications of something like this, but who does at the age of 20? Like, when when do we ever look back at our 20s and go, like, that was a good decision. We should have explored that a little more. So, I talked some in the last episode about how Victoria was constantly under the supervision of somebody. And then at the beginning of this episode, I talked about how because 
she was young and unmarried. She wasn't allowed to live on her own because of social customs at the time. So Victoria, even though she is politically queen of one of the most powerful nations on earth, socially, she was still technically living under her mother's roof, even though it was technically Victoria's roof and she paid the bills. She owed her mother some deference because she was her mother and she was unmarried. She kept her mom confined to a far set of apartments in Buckingham Palace and would often refuse to see her, but she was sick of essentially being under her mother's thumb. So when she complained about this to Lord Melbourne, he jokingly suggested that she should consider getting married. The thing was, most of the people in Victoria's family had already been thinking about this, including Uncle Leopold, who had been urging Victoria to get married. And he had the perfect groom in mind. Remember in the Princess Charlotte episode where I said that when you're a royal and it's the 19th century, uh, the person you're in love with being your cousin wasn't a big deal? Well, um, remember Prince Albert from earlier in the last episode? Um, Uncle Leopold suggested her first cousin, Prince Albert, as a good match. Um, the Cobergs, however, are not very popular in Europe because they are seen as like the backwater upstarts. Albert had been to visit England a few years ago, and in October of 1839, Albert and his brother Ernest arrived in England for another visit. Now, everybody at the time would have told you that Ernest was the more handsome, the more amiable, the more um, likable out of the two, which, which was probably true. But Ernest was in line to become the Duke of Coburg himself, and Albert was really seen as the more suitable match. He and Victoria were um, kind of opposite temperaments, but complementary to each other. And where she was loud and vivacious, he was quiet and thoughtful, and um, Albert was just, he was the second son, so it would be easier for him to pick up and move, unlike his brother. So Albert was seen as the better option out of the two. Victoria initially was reluctant to get married, but then on that visit in October of 1839, it went out, it went out the door. When she set eyes on Albert, she wrote in her journal, it was with some emotion that I beheld Albert, who is beautiful. Five days, less than a week after his arrival in England, Victoria proposed marriage to Albert because as the higher ranking member of the couple, she was the one who had to do the proposing. And I am proud to say that Albert accepted. Albert's visit came to an end in November of 1839, and the preparations for the wedding began, which would take place on February 10th of 1840. The big consideration that needed to be made right now was what was Albert's role going to be once they were married? They weren't really sure because out of all of the previous Queen's Regnant in England, the situation didn't have a clear precedent to follow. When Queen Mary I had been married to Philip of Spain, he was a king in his own right. He had his own country. Elizabeth I was straightforward. She never got married. Mary II was co-monarch with her husband, William III, who ended up outliving her. 
he was invited to be an equal monarch along with Mary by Parliament. So he really wasn't a consort. He was king in his own right. And then there was Queen Anne's husband, Prince George of Denmark. But he wasn't particularly ambitious and didn't seek a lot of political power on his own. So it really was a non-issue. They didn't have to define the role. And then there was the issue of what to call him. And this is not going to be solved until 1857. They get married in 1840. It takes them 17 years to figure out what exactly his role is. He can't be a king consort because of this concept of the order of precedence. So there is a set order of precedence. It's the king is at the top and then a queen technically ranks below a king. So you can't have a king consort because a king is of a higher rank than a queen. So the next step down would be a prince or a duke. So there, there would be no king consort. So if you ever see that come up in a historical fiction, it's wrong. The title eventually settled on for Albert would be the prince consort, which again, he would not officially receive until 1857. He was, however, known as His Royal Highness Prince Albert. So I can't tell you the difference, but I know based off of his birth in Coburg, he would have been known as His Serene Highness and being promoted to Royal Highness kind of gives him a little bit more position, a little bit more authority. He was not given a peerage like the title of a duke or an earl because Parliament was leery of giving him political power. Um, at this time, if he would have received a peerage, he would have also received a seat in the House of Lords. And then the next big thing was financing him. How much money was he going to get? When Parliament was only willing to give Albert an annual allowance of £30,000, it infuriated Victoria and Uncle Leopold, who, again, was the former husband of Charlotte and the current king of the Belgians. Um, please keep in mind, when Leopold was going to marry the heir to the throne, Parliament gave him an annual income of £50,000. Leopold even noted Victoria that he only collected £10,000 now. So even as a king of a different nation, he was still drawing an income as the widower of a member of the royal family. Matters were finally settled, if not to everybody's satisfaction, and plans for the wedding moved forward. Basically, if I remember correctly, Lord Melbourne told Victoria it was not a hill worth dying on right now. And to just accept and move on. So the location of the wedding would be the Chapel Royal at St. James's Palace. We were back again. We were there in the last episode because it was less grand than Westminster Abbey. And unlike weddings of the 18th and early 19th century, the marriage of Victoria and Albert would be a daytime affair. Basically, their wedding is going to set the tone for decades, if not centuries, of weddings to follow. And the first major department where this will be felt is in Victoria's attire for her wedding day. She would wear a white gown and a lace veil. If you remember when we discussed Princess Charlotte Augusta, she wore a dress of 10,000 pounds, but hers, it did not weigh 10,000 pounds. It cost 10,000 pounds. Hers was made of cloth of silver and 
tissue, I believe, which is a type of fabric. But it was not white, and her wedding took place way late at night. So instead of wearing her court robes for her wedding, Victoria commissioned a white satin dress. It was made from Spitalfield silk, which is a British industry, and the trim and the veil were made with Honiton lace. Um, There was a very particular pattern used for the lace for her dress and veil, and Victoria ordered that that pattern be destroyed so no one could replicate that lace pattern. So that's one of the great mysteries of history. We don't know exactly what Victoria's lace pattern looked like because she was buried in that veil. Her dress had a train of six yards that was to be carried by 12 bridesmaids, and instead of wearing a crown or tiara in her hair like she would have had every right to do, she decided to wear a wreath of orange blossoms. Plans for this wedding had to go into overdrive because they were engaged in October and the wedding was taking place in February. So we are talking four months of prep time for this wedding. On the morning of the wedding, Victoria woke up and it was raining, which if you've been to a wedding anytime in the last, like, I don't know, ever, is considered good luck. And I guess it was. They had a pretty productive marriage. The ceremony went well, even though there were a few stumbles. Interestingly enough, Victoria decided to include the word obey in her vows to her husband. By the evening, Victoria was suffering from a headache and spent the rest of the night lying down, but uh, that did not stop her and Albert from enjoying their night, and she noted in her journal, When the day dawned, for we did not sleep much, and I beheld the beautiful angelic face by my side, it was more than I can express. He does look so beautiful in his shirt only with his beautiful throat seam. They had a three-day honeymoon, and then Victoria was ready to get back to business. So that takes us up to uh, the creation of their family. Because remember, like I said in the last episode, birth control in the 19th century was uh, no, none, just none. Victoria and Albert both seemed to have differing views of what his involvement in the family business was going to be. He expected to have an active and involved role, and Victoria expected him to sit there and look pretty. And he would get frustrated with being blocked from any kind of active role. But his frustration is going to be short-lived because 19th century birth control was the best at making sure that somebody got pregnant, not that somebody did not get pregnant. Victoria found out she was pregnant basically right away because I don't math very well, but her wedding was February 10th of 1840 and her first daughter would be born in November of 1840. So almost nine months. Exactly. Victoria found out she was pregnant with her first child almost immediately and she hated being pregnant which sucked for her because she was going to be pregnant a total of nine times during her marriage over the course of, I want to say, 16 years. In fact, in a letter to her mother, the queen wrote, I must say that I could not be more unhappy. I pray to God night and day to let me be left free at least six months, but my prayers have not been answered and I am really most unhappy. 
In June of 1840, when Victoria was about four months pregnant, she faced her first ever assassination attempt. While out driving with Albert um, on the evening of June 10th in an open phaeton, which is some kind of vehicle pulled by horses. I know I sound very intelligent right now. Um, a man fired two shots at Victoria. He was later tried for high treason, but found not guilty by reason of insanity and was put on a boat to Australia. It did have a pos positive effect on the public's opinion of Victoria. Her popularity soared, which was desperately needed after both the Hastings scandal and the bedchamber crisis, which she was still feeling the effects of. Albert also enjoyed the increased public opinion because he'd done his duty as the consort of the monarch. He had uh, been a fertile man and got her pregnant. Good for him. So since childbirth was a risky business in the 19th century and probably especially in the wake of the tragedy of Princess Charlotte's loss, another major concern was what to do in the event that the infant survived, but the mother was lost. Albert wished to be made regent of his own child, which I think is a perfectly reasonable excuse, but if you're looking at this politically, he is a foreign German prince, and this is the same issue with when Victoria was a child. The royal dukes, her um, remaining uncles, also wanted to be regent, and after much campaigning, Victoria's ministers sided with Albert. They decided he would be the better person to be in charge rather than the uncles. This also opened a path for Albert to have increasing influence and access to Victoria's power. He encouraged her when she was feeling particularly tired or fatigued to entrust him with some of her official correspondence, and he even ended up getting access to the infamous red dispatch boxes. Ultimately, their first child was a daughter who they also named Victoria. She was born on November 21st of 1840. And instead of stopping every single time in the next, like, 20-ish years when Victoria has a baby because she's nearly pregnant the entire time, I'm just going to list um, all nine of them here and their nicknames where there is one present. So up first we have Victoria, who was known as Vicky. She was given the title of Princess Royal was born in 1840. She was followed by Albert Edward, who would be known as Bertie, born in 1841. He would later be um, King Edward VII. Then there was Alice, born in 1843. Alfred, born in 1844. Helena, or Lenchen, born in 1846. Louise, born in 1848. Arthur, born in 1850. Leopold, born in 1853. And Beatrice, known as Baby, who was born in 1857. Albert had not so subtly turned Victoria's life upside down, and he continued to make changes wherever he was allowed. Anything he was allowed to touch changed. The palace, or the palaces, I should say, were the first, the first project to be tackled. There was a huge problem with security. There was one boy labeled the Boy Jones who was able to break into Buckingham Palace no less than three times. On one occasion, he even managed to spend three days in the palace before he was discovered. There was also a huge problem with inefficiency and waste in the palace, and it rankled Albert. He could not stand for things to be wasted or for there to be idleness or inefficiency. It, it drove him insane. And since Baroness Layson had gone from being the governess to being in charge of the household 
including his children, it was a mess. Albert could not stand Layson. The break-in gave him inspiration and opportunity to effect some new changes. He got Victoria on a daily routine. Um, he also got spending in the palace under control. He restructured her budget and spending and was able to eventually purchase the private family residence on the Isle of Wight. That would be um, Osborne House. And we will come back to that one a little bit later. He also went on a remodeling and renovation campaign, especially in Buckingham Palace and Windsor. This helped the Crown properties to both run more efficiently, sanitarily, and more cost-effectively. He also trimmed palace staff and cut spending on salaries, so I can't imagine that he was too popular with the servants in the palace at the time. His other big project is going to be a moral crusade on the behaviors of people at court and in the palace, he puts in place a lot of rules and strictures for behavior around him, the queen, and their children. But probably his most significant change is going to be the removal of Lazen from the household staff. It seems that as Albert's role in the palace extended, he felt that Lazen had been given roles and authority above her rank. Albert was a little bit of a snob. When I say a little bit, I mean a lot. But the final blows came in 1842 when Victoria and Albert, who had been at Uncle Leopold's Claremont house, rushed back to Windsor Palace because Vicky was ill. Albert blamed Leitzen, and he and Victoria fought violently about it. I mean, when I say violently, I mean with their words, not with their hands that I know of. I didn't see any sources that say they ever laid hands on each other. But I don't know. Victoria seems like the type that would throw stuff at people during a fight. I've known a few people like that, especially like them short girls. When you get in a fight, I mean, if there is a projectile nearby, they're probably going to go for it if they can. And I feel the authority to speak on that matter because I am only two or three inches taller than Victoria, depending on the source. So eventually, in July of 1842, Albert fired Layson without consulting Victoria at all. He lied to her and told her that she wanted to leave because of her health and Victoria just didn't question it she just went with it she had a tendency to have a huge blind spot wherever Albert was concerned he got a he could get away with murder and Victoria would only see Layson once more in her life and that would be in 1866. So by the beginning of 1841 Melbourne is staring down the barrel of being defeated by Peel's party yet again. And that year in the general election, the Whigs, Melbourne's party, were defeated and Peel's party, the Tories, ultimately took power. This time, Albert intervened and the transfer to Peel went more smoothly, especially in the changeover of some of the ladies of Victoria's house. Um... One thing I will say about Albert's controlling nature is he managed to bring Victoria, when I say down, I mean level her out a little bit in some of her more um, fluctuating behaviors. Eventually, Melbourne resigned and Peel became the new prime minister. And Peel and Albert actually got along and worked together really well, and this left Victoria a little sensitive to the fact that her husband was usurping her position in some ways, but it also probably didn't help the fact that she was pregnant nearly all the time. And I 
read in a couple of sources where people speculate that Albert was intentionally keeping her pregnant. I'm like, I mean, it may have been a little true, but birth control wasn't the greatest at the time, as I have said. So, some big issues unfold in this in this stretch of time. In 1842, the Coal Mine Act was passed to prevent all females and boys under the age of 10 from working in mines, which is a major reform in labor. On May 12, 1842, Victoria decided to host a fancy dress ball. This would be a costume party for all of my American listeners and required those invited to wear costumes made from Spitalfield silk. Again, this is silk made in Britain by British artisans. Her whole motive here was to put a British industry on showcase because British industry was hurting a little bit, especially the um, silk makers. And she was like, I'll have a ball. Everybody invited to the ball has to wear Spitalfield silk. They have to wear a new costume. It'll be so great for the industry. And I can like, I can see if I close one eye and squint out the other where she was coming from. But when guests arrived bedecked in jewels and robed in silk, it was, it was a sight to behold. But unfortunately, I don't think it was the sight she wanted them to behold. And it ended up coming off as super tone deaf considering uh, the cause celeb at this point was the plight of the poor and downtrodden, and this ball was reported on with scorn by the British press. So even though she was trying to do a nice thing, the whole popular movement right here was the plight of the poor person, and that was just uh, not not a good look for her. This is actually depicted in an episode of the show Victoria that came out on Masterpiece a few years ago. It's a good episode. I think they did a good job of communicating this. But by 1845, politics seemed to be revolving around two major crops, potatoes and corn. And if you know anything about Irish history, you know where this is going. So by 1845, wheat was the only heavily protected crop in Europe. Also in 1845, the Irish potato crop was devastated by first a wet summer and then a blight that spread from America to Europe. So basically, the potato crop is absolutely decimated and they are a major food source for the poor of Ireland. And existing laws like the corn laws cause two major problems. The first one being that a majority of other grain crops like wheat were exported to England and tariffs on those crops made them too expensive for the poor of Ireland to consider them as an alternative food source. People are literally dying of starvation, and those that were able were fleeing Ireland in droves. Peel wanted to repeal the corn laws because he saw it as the only way to get the situation in hand, but Victoria was worried because the overall response from the government was not going to be adequate. There was little bit of money raised but not enough to actually help and the Irish Poor Law Extension Act steered them into poor houses and denied relief to people under certain conditions and no further attempts were made to move Ireland away from its dependence on the potato or change the land tenancy system. Basically there is a spiraling list of things going wrong in Ireland and Victoria doesn't feel like they're doing anything significant to it. 
Um, the corn laws are repealed, but at the cost of Peel's position as prime minister, and he is replaced with a man named John Russell. Please keep in mind, during this period, um, Charles Dickens is at the height of his fame. He's writing novels known for their commentary and depiction on the plight of the underclasses, so think stories like Oliver Twist in A Christmas Carol, and they are widely popular. These issues are in the mind of a rapidly shifting 19th century atmosphere towards social and political reform. We are also in the wake of the French Revolution and the defeat of Napoleon and the rise of the monarchy again and um, the establishment of a French Republic. Like All of this stuff is going on in the background. These issues are close to the hearts of the people. And this is not to say that Victoria was ignorant to those who struggled. She was actually like pretty moved by people who she met who were having a hard time. Victoria was one of those people that needs to see the problems with her own two eyes. Like you could tell her about them all day long, but until she witnessed it on her own, it's not going to have the same impact. Victoria turned some of her attention to improving Britain's relationship with France during this time. So as I've mentioned, the French had been through a revolution or two by this time. So if you've seen Les Miserables, you, uh, you know what's happening. Um, there was an event called the Bourbon Restoration, and this was basically the royal family was brought back in. And the king in France at this time was Louis-Philippe of the House of Orléans, which in turn was married into the larger Coburg family. This would be Albert's father, Uncle Leopold, and Victoria's mother's family. So they are related through marriage. Victoria and King Louis-Philippe are related through marriage. Victoria and Albert make a couple of visits to France between 1843 and 1845, and Louis-Philippe also makes a visit to England in 1844. But revolution hits France again in February of 1848, and ultimately Louis-Philippe and his family flee to the United Kingdom in exile. So I think I've mentioned this show before already when we talked about the Spitalfield Ball, but Victoria, the TV series, does an excellent job of covering some of the political issues of this period. They do a fantastic job of creating a narrative around the Irish potato famine. Now, keep in mind, it's historical fiction. Some of the details are going to be exaggerated or changed to fit the dramatics of the show, to fit the narrative arc. But for the for the broad strokes, it does a pretty good job of giving you a flavor of what the world is feeling like at the time. So the issue in particular that they cover really well, I believe, is the Chartist movement. And the opening of season two of the show deals with this. Um, it was at the strongest point in the 1840s during her reign. Um, the Chartists were a group that had six major requests of the government. Um, every man over the age of 21 would receive one vote. Secret ballots would be used in elections. They would eliminate the need for property ownership for people to be able to sit in parliament. They would pay their members of parliament for serving. All constituencies would have equal votes. And there would be annual elections for parliament. So if you're an American listener, this may sound very odd to you. 
that these things are not automatically included in politics because we have, over the course of our brief history, these things are built into our constitution. Um, but for British subjects, they're, they're not there yet. Um, ultimately, in the years that follow, Britain will adopt five of the six proposed reforms. Um, the only reform that is not adopted is the annual par parliamentary elections. Um, but after about 1848, the movement loses momentum. I mean, it still has an impact, but the impact's not felt for decades down the line. The other big issue right now um, is Irish nationalism. So this is the movement for, if you're not familiar with the term, this is the movement for Ireland to break away from control of the British crown and the British government and establish their own home rule. Um, if you've seen Downton Abbey, this is an issue that is near and dear to um, Tom Branson's heart. He is an Irish Republican, and when everybody gets the vapors when he talks about it, th this is the issue. Um, this is a little bit before his time, but this would have been very much on Tom Branson's mind. So there you go. There's another historical connection for you to popular media. Um, Irish nationalism picks up steam in the 1840s in the wake of the Great Famine. Um, Victoria makes a successful trip to Ireland in 1849, but it didn't do much to encourage lasting change. It probably just put off Irish nationalism for like another 70, 80 years. I want to take a brief break from politics during the time to discuss um, a little bit of the private life of Victoria and Albert. Um, there's not really a good spot to throw in a discussion of Balmoral and Osborne House, but we're going to talk about those right here. So Victoria and Albert first visit Scotland in 1845. So while they're in Scotland, they see this property that ultimately Balmoral Castle would one day occupy. And Albert acquires the lease to that land in 1848. And they went to their first visit to the property in September of that year with the intention of renovating and expanding the property, but they eventually decided to just tear it down and start over again. Um... Construction begins in 1853, and the family first moves into the royal apartments in 1855. This castle became a popular retreat for the royal family and remains popular to this day. I mean, it features prominently in The Crown. I think, I think they go to Balmoral in every single season of The Crown. And it was where recently Queen Elizabeth passed away. Like she was up there for her annual visit during the summer and that was where she ultimately passed away. So this, this is a significant place for the royal family almost 200 years later. Um, their other major residence was Osborne House. Um, Victoria and Albert purchased the original house and the property it stood on in October of 1845. But they figured out that they were going to need more room because they were popping out kids left and right. Um, Osborne was intended to be a private family residence. It, Buckingham Palace is like the official residence of the royal family, but they just didn't like it as much. So Osborne House really was their like family vacation home. Um, the new house 
was under construction between 1845 and 1851, and they would spend loads of time there. Probably the coolest feature on the entire property is the uh, three-quarter size Swiss cottage that was built and designed for the children's use. And if I read correctly, it was actually constructed in Switzerland, dismantled and shipped over in pieces and then put back together um, on the property of Osborne House. And the fun thing about the grounds of of the Swiss cottage is the kids each got their own little plot of land and got to grow veggies and produce and Albert would encourage them to grow and sell their produce and then the house also had a functional kitchen where they would cook meals with the things they grew and serve dinner or meals to their family and Albert really wanted his children to have a hands-on experience with commerce and economics and domestic skills. He wanted them to be useful, not just ornamental. Another fun fact about Osborne House is that an early version of the telephone was demonstrated by Alexander Graham Bell himself. And a year after the Queen's death, uh, King Edward VII donated the house to the nation and eventually the house became the site of the Royal Naval College between 1903 and 1921. Today you can now visit it. Um, it is open to the public. But the crowning achievement, um, especially for Albert during this time, is the Great Exhibition. The Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations known as the Great Exhibition of 1851, ran from May 1st to October 15th of that year. The aim of the Great Exhibition was to show off major achievements of the arts and industry around the world, and the exhibition would be the first of several popular world's fairs of the 19th and early 20th century. If any of you listen to the History Chicks, um, they discuss a direct descendant of this, the nineteen, the 1893 World's Fair of Chicago, several times in several different episodes. Um, they're a great show. You should listen to them too. So the exhibition was organized under the leadership of Albert and members of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Art Manufacturers and Commerce. They love them a long name. The entire exhibition was held in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. The palace was designed by Joseph Paxton, with structural supports designed by Charles Fox, and Paxton had previously worked in designing greenhouses for clients such as William Cavendish, the sixth Duke of Devonshire. Some of the prominent attractions during the Great Exhibition were the Koenor Diamond. Um, yes, that Koenor Diamond, the one that is in St. Edward's Crown. Uh, it was taken from India by the East India Company. Matthew Brady and his daguerreotypes, so a form of early modern photography, and probably the most significant achievement of the Great Exhibition are the first modern pay toilets. So you could put a penny in and go to the bathroom. Um, I guess it was better than squatting in a ditch outside. I don't know. I'd be excited to use a pay toilet if my other option was a porta potty. Anyways, the exhibition did wonders for Albert's public persona. 
and helped to endear him to the British public because one of his biggest accomplishments during his tenure was this exhibition. It also generated an excess of £200,000, which Albert then planned to reinvest into other institutions relating to manufacturing raw materials, machinery, and art. Probably some of the most significant institutions to come to life were the complex of museums that now houses um, places such as the Victoria and Albert Museum, Albert Hall, the Imperial College, the Museum of Natural History, and the Royal College of Music. So if you have ever been to that area, you have benefited directly from the Great Exhibition of 1851. Um, Victoria and Albert become very domestic in the 1850s. Albert's work efforts during this time took a toll on him physically and mentally, while Victoria's back-to-back -back pregnancies and childbirth often left her a wash in hormonal swells. I have never personally been pregnant or had a child, but I can only imagine. So the result of this can be seen in the interactions between Victoria and Albert, especially in the time near the births of Leopold and Beatrice. So these would be babies number eight and nine, respectively. The two of them would fight so loudly. Albert was the type of man who liked to walk away from a fight. Like if he got frustrated, he would just turn off and leave the room. And Victoria was the polar opposite, as we have discussed. Her method of participating in a fight was to follow the person who was walking away from her as she continued to nag at him or yell at him. Where he would just shut down and walk away, she would become even more enraged when he just would not engage with her. He liked to think that the way to deal with her was to tell her to, quote, control herself and to, quote, talk to God because, you know, when you're struggling, that, that's what you want to be told. He would even get frustrated to the point where he would write her these long letters and memorandums on how she need to focus on her own problems and leave him the hell alone and how she could best improve her interactions with him. But despite being mere constant bickering, Victoria remained absolutely enamored with her husband. During the period of the 1850s, um, while all of this stuff is kind of going on in the background, the Crimean War broke out. I'm just going to note that there are plenty of other podcasts that can give you a thorough and accurate breakdown of the conflict and Britain's involvement in it and what it meant on the world stage. The only the only hard fact I can recall from my own memory is the Crimean War being one of the first modern photographed wars and it helped change the perception that the world had on what it actually meant to go to war. But that's about all I got. And basically, Turkey and Russia were at each other's throats, were at war with each other, and Britain got drawn into it on Turkey's side along with France. And British participation in the war was chaotic and disorganized, a fact that uh, shocked many of the British subjects and angered them. Um, the war also had an impact on the public's perception of Albert, with the old specter of distrusting him because of his foreignness rearing its head. And Victoria spent a lot of time with her ministers to alter the public's perception of Albert and get Parliament 
involved in some aspects of improving his um, public standing. During this time, Victoria also met uh, one Florence Nightingale, who returned with harrowing stories of the war, the wounded, and how disorganized everything was. And since we are nearing the end of Victoria giving birth, her older children are starting to grow up. And up until this point, we've mostly shelved the exploits of the kids. But by the 1850s, the older children were coming of age and becoming adults and significant things were happening in their lives. And of course, the first one up would be Vicky. In 1855, the royal family took a trip to Balmoral when Prince Frederick William of Prussia proposed marriage to her parents. Well, he didn't propose it to her parents. He proposed marriage to their daughter to her parents. Um, Vicky and Frederick had met four years earlier when he was visiting the United Kingdom with his parents. I guess it would be more accurate to refer to him as Fritz because that's what everybody else called him. He impressed, he was impressed with her ability to speak flawless German when they were being shown around the Great Exhibition. Victoria and Albert were very fond of the match. They thought it was a great idea because... Albert kind of had this vision of a united Germany, which would happen, uh, not during his lifetime, it would be during his daughter's lifetime, but uh, he wanted Germany to be united under one government, and he saw sending Vicky over as a way to kind of start accomplishing that. So they saw the match as a way to spread their liberal thinking and ideas to the Prussian court. But they put a stipulation on the engagement that Vicky would not be married before she turned 17. And Albert spent two years of her engagement training his daughter to be the perfect wife and consort to Fritz. Ultimately, they got married in the, you guessed it, Chapel Royal of St. James's Palace on January 25th, 1858. Their first son, Frederick William Victor Albert, was born during a perilous delivery that left his left arm deformed. So basically, he was breech, he almost died, Vicky was traumatized, it was a whole mess. Victoria was beside herself when she found out how bad it was. Um, he was born on January 27th, 1859, so 367 days after his parents' wedding. Um, this little cherub would grow up to be Kaiser Wilhelm of, of World War I fame. And for all of the things that Vicky accomplished, Bertie just caused trouble. So Bertie and Vicky were close in age. Vicky was born in November of 1841 and Bertie was born in November of 1842. Victoria, she was Victoria, but Vicky was a naturally talented and studious child. She favored her father, learned quickly, and engaged in intellectual discussion with him. Bertie, however, was much more like his mother. He was emotional, he was very social, and he was a very sensitive child. His parents wanted the future king to be well-educated and put him through a rigorous educational regime that began when he was just seven years old. And it went, I want to say it was six days, six or seven days a week. He tried his hardest to meet their expectations, but he was just not the student that his sister was. And that's not to say he wasn't smart because others commented on his intelligence 
and his um, likability, but he was just not in the same league as his sister. He actually formed kind of like a little alliance with his sister Alice. The two of them were like best buds. And they used to like steal cigarettes and go hide out behind the palace and smoke together, which I thought was hysterical. Um, Bertie not quite meeting expectations continued well into his adult years. Like, and I'm talking past the time his dad died. Around the time his sister was getting married, Bertie was living his best life. He visited Canada and America in 1860, where he was super popular among the crowds that he met. During his trip to New York, he received a standing ovation and a ballroom floor collapsed under the weight of a crowd pressing in to come see him. In the summer of 1861, Bertie was sent to Camp Curra with the Grenadier Guards for 10 weeks, where he began a tryst with an actress named Nellie Clifton. When his father found out, through reading a newspaper on his trip to Germany, he was enraged. But we will put a pin in that story for right now. Bertie's wild behavior steered his parents into deciding that he needed to be married and the sooner the better, and his sister Vicky had been keeping tabs on the royal marriage market in Europe, proposing Princess Alexandra of Denmark as the potential bride. And again, we're going to stick a pin in that and come back to it in a minute. That brings us up to 1861, which would prove to be one of the most defining years, if not the defining year in Victoria's reign. This is kind of I don't know how many other people are like this, but ever since the pandemic happened, there was a before and after, uh, before the pandemic and after the pandemic. And this is definitely a before and after moment for Victoria. So Victoria's relationship with her mother in the early years was strained and distrustful, but things improved after Lazen left. And in the intervening years, the two grew to be quite close and had a much healthier relationship with each other. But by the end of 1859, the Duchess of Kent was in poor health and Victoria wrote to her uncle Leopold that she had never suffered as she had in waiting to hear news of whether her mother would survive or not. And her health, uh, she pulled through, but towards the end of 1860, she was ill again in that she really never recovered from that. On March 16th of 1861, the Duchess of Kent died after several months of poor health and Victoria had been holding her mother's hand when she passed she plunged into a depressive episode in the wake of her mother's death she cried for weeks and kept her curtains drawn in her room Albert even had to caution her against wallowing in those feelings for too long he was very concerned about her mental health and he was very worried about the state that she was in in the midst of this Albert was also struggling with poor health, and he had never been a very healthy adult or particularly healthy child. Um, He was bothered by the cold. He frequently had headaches. He frequently had stomach aches, toothaches, fevers, and other complaints. He was just always ill, and he would get extreme bouts of vomiting from being stressed out. Like, his health was not helped by his extreme drive and work ethic. He was going all the time. So he was constantly putting stress on himself, constantly fighting with his wife, constantly dealing with his kids and Bertie and politics and the Great Exhibition. He worked himself literally to death. 
in September of 1860, Albert was involved in a carriage accident where the horse is pulling a carriage. He was in bolted and he flung himself out of the carriage and was pretty beat up and scratched up from that. But that takes us back to the story of Bertie and his uh, actress girlfriend. In November of 1861, Albert heard the rumors of Bertie's liaison with the actress Nellie Clifton. He sat down and wrote Bertie a scathing letter and Victoria was equally harsh on her son. I read some of the stuff they said. I'm just not going to repeat it here. I mean, it's like 19th century insults, so it's not inappropriate. It's just parents shouldn't say things like that about their children. And the situation with Bertie just continued to plague Albert. So he set off to visit Bertie, who was at this time back at Cambridge where he was studying. The two of them took a long walk in the rain and Bertie genuinely felt sorry and apologized to his father about all of this. And Albert ended up heading home. And when he got back to Windsor from Cambridge, he was sick and suffering from neuralgic pain in his legs and back. And it just goes down downhill from here. This was the beginning of his final decline. He woke up early on November 30th, 1861 to pen a response to a memo received from the British ambassador to the United States regarding an incident involving intercepted Confederate delegates. It's a whole mess. You can go read about that. But it basically had to do with Britain's um, declaration of neutrality in the um, American Civil War, which was happening during this time. Albert was so unwell that he could barely hold his hand, his own pen by the end of the, uh, the end of the letter. By Monday, December 2nd, Albert was receiving opiates to help him cope with the pain. He started to become listless and had a faraway look in his eyes. And when Victoria got up early on December 6th, um, he couldn't seem to engage with her or focus. Like he was conscious, but he wasn't, the lights were on and no one was home. By December 7th, he was incoherent. Uh, when he was coherent, he has to be moved to the Blue Room in Windsor Palace, and that would ultimately be um, his last stop. Like, I'm not trying to be funny. I, I laugh when I'm uncomfortable, and saying that would be his last stop. So while he's declining, doctors in charge of his care continually reassure Victoria that he's fine. It's not as bad as he's thinking. He's going to pull through. Give it a week. He'll be fine. Um... They promised her he would make a recovery, and that, to me, it seems cruel, but also keeping in mind, Victoria was known to have a tendency to overreact to situations, or to react largely, especially where her angel Albert was concerned. She also had that one major depressive episode after the death of her mother, which was just earlier that year. Like, this is in the same calendar year. And there was concern over how she would react once she realized how bad the situation actually was. Bertie, their son, wasn't told anything about his father's condition until his sister Alice decided to send him a telegram stating that Papa was, quote, not so well and that he needed to come at once. Victoria hadn't wanted him there at all because she thought his presence would upset his father even more, which, I'm sorry, I have mixed feelings about Victoria as a parent, and this is one of those where I'm just like, that's just cold. 
Bertie got the news, boarded a train on December 13th, and when he arrived, he was shocked to see how bad off his father was. And by the next day, December 14th, the decline became more apparent. Um, Victoria was absolutely eaten up with grief. Later that night, she collapsed on the floor in the anteroom um, outside of Albert's chamber, sobbing. The dean of Windsor told her she would need to seal herself for a great trial. He was like her spiritual counselor. And Victoria just cried even harder. And she said to him, why? Why must I suffer this? My mother, what was that? I thought that was grief, but that was nothing to this. So it sounds to me, even though they were trying to keep the truth from her, I think she realized that things were things were not going well for her husband. And a few minutes after this, the doctor who was in the room sent Alice to come get Victoria and bring her back because the end the end was apparent. Victoria knelt next to Albert and took his hand like she had when her mother was dying. And the inevitable became apparent to her in this moment. Oh no, she said. I have seen this before. This is death. Ultimately, Albert was surrounded by his family. Five of his nine children are present and several other members. Alice stood across from her mother at the bed, at the side of the bed. Helena and Bertie stood at the foot of the bed, and Victoria's nephew and his wife stood behind her along with four royal doctors, Albert's valet, and his equerries. Pardon me, valet, if you are not American. He took three more breaths, and that was it. Victoria stood up, pressed his hand to her face, and she cried out in a way that chilled the hearts of her children. Before she went to bed that night, Victoria went to the nursery, picked up a sleepy four-year-old Beatrice from her bed, and took her back to the room that she and Albert had shared. She laid Beatrice down and then curled up with her, and Alice slept in a small bed at the foot of her mother's bed. So, what killed Albert? There's been a lot of speculation throughout the years as to what finally ended Albert's life. The prevailing theory was typhoid fever from the poor drainage and sewage situation at Windsor, coupled with the fact that he had been walking in poor weather and he always was prone to illness. Other theories include bowel cancer, stomach ulcers, kidney disease, or some other inflammatory bowel disorder. Um, Some have also suggested an autoimmune disorder such as Crohn's disease. But in the mind of Victoria, it was Albert's concern over Bertie's philandering behavior that was the cause of his death. And therefore, it was Bertie's fault that his father met a premature end. Um, Victoria's relationship with her son doesn't really recover from this. The immediate aftermath of Albert's death was profound. Victoria was so grief-stricken that she couldn't even attend his funeral. And then in the months and years that would follow, she would refuse to appear in public. This behavior alone would last for the better part of a decade. She ended. She entered a state of deep mourning. She dressed in black for the rest of her life. Her self-imposed isolation would even encourage a spread of republicanism in the hearts of her subjects. As we leave Victoria once more at what is arguably the lowest point in her reign and probably of her entire life, for 20 years of her life, her daily 
routine and identity had been dictated by and revolved around her position as Albert's wife. And for the second time in her life, she was without the figure who guided her and encouraged her the most. When we return for the final part of the Broad Chronicle's coverage of Queen Victoria, we will see how she recovers from this point, becomes a grandmother of Europe, and the head of the empire, and synonymous with 19th century British life. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Broad Chronicles. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review on your favorite podcatcher, or you can reach out to the show at the Broad Chronicles Pod on Instagram. Thank you.